0: So how many of you uh, read Psalm 21, 22, and 23 since last week? All right, some did the homework. All right, that's good. I'd like you to continue it. Uh, and this time, see if you can discern the connection between these three psalms. I don't know if you uh, remember from last week. The reason I'm doing this study is I believe there's a, a progression here. There's a theme that goes through. And as you read, ask God to, to show you what that might be as in anticipation of our discussion next week. Uh, for those of you who were looking for a hinge in this psalm, there I don't believe there is a hinge in Psalm 23, so don't waste your time looking for the hinge. I don't think there is. You can waste your time looking for it if you want to, and if you come to the same conclusion that I do, that's okay. Last week we looked at Psalm 21. It was a psalm of praise where David celebrates God's goodness to him in the past, present, and future. Uh, I was... Struck by the song, blessed be your name, there are seasons of life when sunshine is all around us. Uh, that's what Psalm 21 was all about. And then the next line is when darkness closes in. That's what Psalm 22 is all about. Psalm 22 is where the bottom drops out. As we noticed, the, uh, some of the psalms have uh, super, what are called superscripts, instructions at the top. Uh, th- those are part of the original manuscripts. Uh, this one is, again, addressed to the choir master. According to the Doe of the Dawn, it's unclear what that means. It's possibly the melody, the tune that the psalm was to be sung to. And it's a psalm of David. It's attributed to David as the one who has written the psalm. This psalm deals with a period of intense suffering in life and I imagine most of us here have, have had those. I picked one out of a few candidates in our lives, uh, a season of life of darkness and uh, intense suffering. December 18, 2019, as many of you know, I fell on the ice on my bicycle as I was commuting to work, broke my pelvis, requiring surgery and a 12-week recovery of not putting weight on that leg. Nine days later, a new grandson was born And I couldn't go to see him because of my injury. Well, March 2020 comes. I was released to resume normal activity, and we began to think about traveling to see the new grandson. And guess what happened? COVID. The COVID lockdown came, and we couldn't travel. Finally, in July 2020, we're finally in a place we can travel, and we spend a delightful few days meeting our new grandson, who is now six months old, soon to be seven months old. And then on July 19th, 2020, exactly one week after we got home, we received a rare phone call from our daughter as we were sitting down for Sunday lunch with the words, the baby is gone. Victim of a crib death. To say it was devastating is putting it mildly. And here we are. It's still brought to tears at times with that, a period of intense suffering. And we ask the questions that we're going to look at in this psalm. Take a few moments, if you can, to remember some kind of intense suffering in your life. I'm just going to give you a few seconds to reflect on that. How did it feel? Physically, emotionally, spiritually. And let's hold it in our hearts and minds as we go through this study. Psalm 21 was a psalm of praise. Psalm 22 is a psalm of lament. Lament. A psalm of sorrow, of mourning, of complaint, of regret. David wrestles with the issue of intense, especially unexplained suffering. There is no indication in the psalm as to the specific circumstance in his life that was involved in this suffering. And this wrestling that we'll look at involves at least two things. It's overwhelming suffering in the life of one who believes in God. And it's God's apparent distance and silence in the midst of that suffering. So, before we continue on, I would just like to stop for a moment and pray again. Our Father in heaven, uh, we come before you now as we look at your word. We believe this is your word to us. And I have to confess, I believe there are great truths contained in this psalm, but truths that are hard for our human minds and hearts to grasp, to understand and that I think defy the human ability to express. So we ask that it would not be our human understanding and our human communication, but it would be your spirit at work in our midst today to open our hearts and minds to understand the great truths that are contained here, that your spirit would take these and drive them deeply into our hearts and lives, and that we would leave here changed, because of our encounter with you and your word today. May you use this to draw us closer to you and to deeper fellowship and able to face the challenges of life when the darkness closes in. So we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your spirit within us, and we look to see what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we like to do in the first section here is look uh, get a flavor of what's going on in this psalm. And I'd like to do that in a couple different ways. The first way is I'd like to read verses uh, out of Psalm 21, verses 1, 7, and 13. Verse, and then go into the first part of 22. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices in, in your salvation, how greatly he exalts... For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Do you feel the confusion? Do you hear the pain? Life was going so well in the present and I was so hopeful for the future. So confident in you, God. And now this? This? My God, my God. And he's asking basically two questions. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me in the midst of these struggles? And where are you? Where are you? I am praying constantly. And you are nowhere to be found. Have you ever been there? Ever been there? Maybe you're there now. Maybe you're there now. Life is going well, or at least well enough. You've been trusting God, seeking God, even praising him for his goodness. And all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, the bottom drops out. And you ask God, why? Why? Why is this happening? Why are you not answering my prayers? Where are you? As we go further into this psalm, we see a great internal struggle, a great wrestling of faith that's going on, a back and forth, which illustrates the struggle of a believer who is going through this kind of suffering. I'd like to see if I can capture the intensity of that wrestling. There's a on the one hand, but on the other hand. And you see him go back and forth. And Let me see if I can just capture that quickly before we dig in. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet you, God, are holy, and you have rescued my ancestors. But God, I am a worm, and you haven't rescued me. Yet you are the one who caused me to believe in you from birth. But I'm at the end of myself because of this suffering, and I can't see you. But God, be near, come quickly, deliver me, save me, rescue me. This back and forth wrestling of faith in God, and where is God in the midst of the suffering. And his, his pain is made worse by what he experienced in Psalm 21. In 21.2, 21 he says, you have not withheld the request of my lips. And then in verse 2 of 22, he says, I cry to you day and night, there's no answer. In 21.6, he says, you made me glad with the joy of your presence. And in 22.1, he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? In 21.7, I trust in you and know that through your steadfast love, I will not be moved. And then in 22.8, he says, even now, my trust in you is an occasion for their mockery. He trusts in God. Where is his God now? In 22.3, he says, our fathers praised you and you personally lived with them. In 21.13, he says, I have praised you. Where are you now? In 22.5, he says, our fathers cried to you and you rescued them. In 22.2, he says, I cry to you. and There's no answer. Again, do you feel, hear the pain and the confusion in the midst of this intense suffering? Well, let's slow it down a little bit. And look at this wrestling in a little more detail. In verses 1 and 2, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away? Where are you? Aren't these common questions that we ask when in the middle of intense suffering? When, when the darkness closes in, we are so prone for good reasons <laughs> to say, God, why? Why? What's going on? What do you want me to learn? I don't understand. The pain is so real, and God seems so far, far away. But David goes on. He says, yet, in verse 3, you are holy. You are perfect, spotless. You don't tolerate any wrong. When our people worship you, you said you are pleased to live with us, to dwell with us. Our fathers trusted you in the past. You delivered them. They cried to you, and you rescued them. And then in verse 6, he says, but I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. One commentator said this. He said, it's hard to put a good face on a worm. Biblical references are uniformly negative as the worm appears in contexts of disease, decay, torture, and the dehumanizing of people. And David says, well, you are holy, but I, I'm a worm. I am despised. I am hated by those around me. I am mocked by all who see me. As a matter of fact, they make fun of my faith in you. And then in verse 9, he goes back, yet you have allowed me to trust in you from the time of birth. I cannot remember a time in my life when I was not trusting in you, when I was not following after you. But now... But now, trouble is near, and you are far away. Trouble is near, and you are far away. Starting at verse 12, he refers to some different animals. He says, I am surrounded by strong bulls of Bashan, who are like hungry lions. This is a description of the people around him. Bashan was an area known for its fertile fields and pastures, The the cattle there were very healthy and very large, including the oxen. And some of those oxen were wild and roamed free, they said, sometimes even in the streets of the cities. And being wild, they sometimes attacked and gored people. David says, I'm surrounded by the bulls of Bashan. In verses 14 and 15, he says, I'm physically spent. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint." He says, I am thirsty beyond thirst. I am thirsty. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And then in verse 16, he says, not only am I surrounded by these bulls of Bashan that are like ravening lions, I'm also surrounded by dogs. Another description of the people who are troubling him. For many of us who love our dogs, One of the things we have to remember is they are scavengers who will eat anything available, including disgusting things if necessary. And that's the picture here of the dog being willing to eat anything available. He is surrounded by these dogs, even to the point of dividing his clothing among them. They give no regard to him. It becomes a proverb in the New Testament where Peter says, even like a dog returning to its vomit. Uh, we won't go any further. You get the image. And then in verses 19 to 21, he says, yet, yet, if you look at it, but you, O Lord, but you. There's, you follow the but and the yets through here. You see this back and forth. In the midst of his intense suffering and God's apparent absence, he does not abandon his faith in God and his dependence upon God. He again calls on on God to deliver him from the sword, the dog, the lion. Verse 20, deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Rescue me from the horns of the wild oxen. He knows that God is his only hope. And in the midst of his despair, he goes to the only place he can go. He does not ultimately abandon his trust in God, but continues to call out to God as his last and only hope. I love this definition of lament. We said this psalm is a psalm of lament. There's a man named Mark Virgop who has written a book. I believe it's called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And in that book, he says, lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It's a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Lament is how a Christian processes suffering. Lament is how a Christian grieves. Lament moves the question from why is this happening and where are you to focusing on who God is so that the who begins to overshadow the why and the where. Without lament... We can sink into despair and anger, bitterness, confusion, disappointment, perhaps even trite solutions. Oh, God's going to take care of this. But lament acknowledges the pain and the confusion. It acknowledges the pain and the confusion. But it ultimately acknowledges God as the only rescuer, the only hope, the only help. A prayer in pain that leads to trust. Now, how many of you went through this, were looking for the hinge? All right, I got a couple in. Anybody else? All right. So, all right, so we got maybe three or four. Uh, Did you decide on what you thought the hinge was? Anybody? You want to venture a guess? I I won't make you say it publicly. It's all right. Verse 21 is the hinge And actually, it it turned right in the middle of the verse. If you look at verse 21, the first part of that is, save me from the mouth of the lion. He's still crying out to the Lord for help. And the second part of verse 21 is, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. He goes from this despair and crying out to the Lord to acknowledgement that God has rescued him. In spite of God's apparent absence and silence expressed in verses 1 and 2, God has acted to rescue him. We don't know the details of that because we don't know the details of the circumstances, but he says God has rescued him. I love verse 24. If you look at verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Verse 24. 24 addresses all the anguish of verses 1 and 2. God has not actually forsaken him in his affliction. God has not actually hidden his face from him. God has indeed heard him. Verses 1 and 2 God, why have you forsaken me? He realizes God never forsook him. He says, Why are you so far from saving me? And he says that he has not hidden his face. God, I cry to you by day and by night, but you do not answer. He realizes, no, he did hear when I cried to you. Despite the appearance of what he expressed in verses 1 and 2, God was there all the time. But this is the part that's hard for us to get a hold of. David's rescue was all in God's time and God's way, not David's. God was always there, just not always obvious. In the midst of suffering, we must often stop. Instead of just naming what is true about our situation, we must reflect on the truth of who God is. It is true that we are suffering, but the truth is that God is still near, he is still able, and will still rescue. So when suffering, David asserts the truth about God in addition to acknowledging what is true about his circumstances. See, when we're in the middle of suffering, there's a tendency we have to say, oh, it's no big deal, God has this. No, it's okay to tell God this stinks. It's okay to tell God this hurts. It's okay to tell God you don't understand. But at the end of the day, do you come back and say, God, save me, help me? So, what is David's response to the truth of who God is and what he has done? Well, in verse 23, he says, we will stand in awe of him. We will stand in awe. As we look at where we were and what God has done, we will stand in awe. He also says, I'm going to tell others about you. In verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. He's going to tell the assembly of fellow believers, that's us, of what God has done. And he says he will continue to serve God. In verse 26, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. I will continue to serve God and seek God among the assembly of believers. In the midst of suffering, we need one another. We need one another. He also, in verse 26, is going to talk to the afflicted. He said, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever David wants those who are afflicted to know that God will hear and answer. And when you're reading the Bible and you read about the afflicted, think believers who are suffering. That's what that term is referring to. It's believers who are suffering. People like you and me who are in the midst of suffering, we are the afflicted. And David says, I I wanna tell those of you who are afflicted because of what I have been through that you will eat and be satisfied Those who seek God shall praise him. May your hearts live forever. God promises that one day they, we, will be satisfied. In verse 27, David says he's also going to tell the nations of the world. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. He wants them to know. He wants people who don't know God to know of his great works. And then in verses 30 and 31, he talks about the coming generations Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. Done what? Done what? He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has rescued. And part of those of us who have been rescued, part of our responsibility is to tell the next generation of what God has done. So what's the bottom line so far? I believe it is this, that God will always rescue his children from suffering. Always. God will always rescue his children from suffering. Always. Well, how does this fit in to the larger story of the Bible? You remember the last week we mentioned a very important thing. When we read the Old Testament, we must read with an eye to seeing what that passage is telling us about Jesus. In John 5.39, Jesus told the religious leaders that in their intense study of the scriptures, they were missing the main point, that those scriptures they were reading and studying were about him. They were about him. He says, you search the scriptures because that in them you think you have eternal life, and it is they that speak of me. So when reading the Old Testament, we need to look for Jesus there. Well, Psalm 22 is one of those Old Testament passages in which it's easy to see where Jesus is if you know anything of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. This psalm recounts important events from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection about a thousand years before they happened. Verse 1, if you're familiar, these are Jesus' words from the cross. His direct words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he realizes that he's taking on the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders and that God has turned his face away and is not going to rescue him. Verse 2, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked God to deliver him. Take this cup from me. And he was met with silence. Verses six and seven, during Jesus' life, trial and crucifixion, he was scorned, he was despised, he was mocked. The religious leaders, even at his crucifixion, unwittingly taunted him with the very words of verse eight. Just look at verse eight, and I'm gonna read the words of these religious leaders who were mocking Jesus at his crucifixion from Matthew 27. He saved others, he cannot save himself, He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. So even his enemies fulfilled this psalm. Verses 9 and 10 where it talks about I have, on you I was cast from my birth. You took me from my mother's womb. We know that Jesus was set apart for God from the womb. He was conceived By the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, they have pierced my hands and feet, consistent with Jesus' crucifixion. Verse 18, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. and We know that that happened at the crucifixion. Verse 22 is directly quoted in Hebrews 2.12, referring to Jesus, who is not ashamed to call us brothers. He says in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. The writer of the Hebrews puts those words in Jesus' mouth, who is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters because of his sacrifice of love on behalf of his church. Then in verse 27, talking about the nations of the world, the Bible tells us a people from all the nations of the earth will worship Jesus. And in verse 28, kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords who rules over all. Verse 29, before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. We find in the New Testament that one day every knee shall bow to Jesus Christ. Those who know him and love him and those who have rejected him and then in verses 30 and 31 Jesus is at work today to tell all generations of his salvation. And you'll notice these last verses assume Jesus resurrection because Jesus can't do any of these things from verse verses what 22 yeah 22 on without having been raised from the dead. So it assumes his resurrection. So Jesus completely lived out and completed the experiences of this psalm. Jesus completely lived out and completed the experiences of this psalm. He is the sufferer who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he is the rescued one who was even raised from the dead. God will always rescue his children from suffering. Always. God will always rescue his children from suffering, always. Well, let's spend a few moments now looking at Psalm 22 and how that may apply more deeply to you and me. As we wrestle with the presence of suffering in our lives, I believe there's a very important truth contained in this psalm that is important for us to understand. And it's actually contained in the hinge verse, if you go back to verse 21. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. What happened to Jesus? Uh, Just a little lesson here. When you're talking about breaking up verses in the middle, right? We know how to talk about verses. Well, if you're talking about the first sentence, we refer to it as 21a. And the second sense, sentence is 21B. And if there are three sentences, you can go to 21C. So, what happened to Jesus between 21A and 21B? What happened to Jesus between the request to save me from the mouth of the lion and you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen? What happened to him? He died. He died. And he was raised from the dead three days later, all because of God's steadfast love towards us. You see, David's request in verse 20, deliver my soul from the sword, and his statement in verse 21b, you have rescued me. Between those, the request to be rescued and the statement that I have been rescued, there's death. There's a death of something that happens. Followed by Resurrection. I'd like to turn to a passage, and you can join me if you like, in 2 Corinthians. I believe Paul captures this application for us very well in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul Paul is referring to some great sufferings that he and his companions went through in their journeys. And in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, he says we do not want you to be unaware brothers of the affliction we experienced in Asia for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself indeed we felt that we had received the sentence of death What he's saying here is the the pressures that were coming in on him they gave up all hope of survival They gave up all hope of survival. He says we were not burdened just up to the limits of our strength. We were burdened beyond our strength. We despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But what's his next sentence? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. The worst thing that any human being can do to us is what? Is to kill us. That's the worst thing that a human being can do. And I'm not meaning to minimize that because that's a very serious thing. But with God's ability to raise us from the dead, the worst thing that can happen to us becomes the best thing that can happen to us because death does nothing more than become the road to be in Jesus' presence forever. Because of Jesus' resurrection... No death is ever final. Because of Jesus' resurrection, no death is ever final. God has promised us resurrection, whether now, you see, he can bring to life circumstances that appear to be dead. And if I had time, I could share some stories in our lives where we were going a certain direction, and the door slammed shut. It was dead. It was gone. We could not move forward. And God raised that up in ways that we could not have anticipated So God can bring to life circumstances or opportunities that seem dead. Or he can literally raise us when our bodies physically die. We are going to be raised from the dead, those of us who have put our faith in him. No suffering will ever have the last word. No illness, no injury, no circumstances, no person with evil intent, no death, nothing. will. No suffering will ever have the last word because of Jesus' death and resurrection. So, Jesus, who was the sufferer and the rescued, now becomes the rescuer. Don't we hate the evil and injustice and suffering of this world? Yet we're glad that Jesus was willing to suffer the injustice of the cross for us. And what does the cross represent? Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection shows us that God can and will use the evil and injustices of this world, overrule them, turn them on their head to work his perfect purposes for us without condoning the injustice. Only God can do that. The greatest injustice ever committed in this entire world was Jesus being crucified on the cross at the hands of the Roman army and the Jewish leaders. But God took that injustice and turned it on its head and turned it into the greatest good that could ever have been done. So let's think back now to where we started about a time of suffering in your life. There is indeed great mystery to God's dealings with his children particularly in the area of suffering. I'm not going to stand here and say, oh, yes, I I know why you're suffering. I know why suffering is here. I, I know why this is going on. To the contrary, I had someone ask me after my injury, so I suppose when you're all done with this, you're going to know why this all happened to you. And I said to the contrary, when all this is over, I'm expecting to have no clue why this happened to me. What I'm hoping is to have a deeper trust in who God is and getting me through it without having to understand the why. There is great mystery to God's dealings with his children. And I believe it's important to have a proper view of suffering or we will be greatly shaken when it comes, not if, when it comes. Suffering, including inexplicable suffering at the hands of the evil of this world, is part of life in this world. Jesus promised that in John 16, 33. He says, in the world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. You will have suffering. But we have to finish the verse. He says, but take heart, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart. He doesn't promise to remove the suffering from those of us who have put our faith in him. He has promised that he has, not that he will overcome the world. He has overcome the world. And we can take heart. Because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, God always rescues his children from suffering. Always. God always rescues his children from suffering. Always. And so we can confidently speak of rescue, even though it hasn't happened yet. So when we consider God's relationship to us when we were suffering, a long-term view is needed, including an eternal view. Suffering is always temporary, even though it is long. Suffering is temporary, even though it is long. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 5. He says, know that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little, I'm sorry, after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God's in charge. Our suffering is not in charge. God's in charge. The evil people of this world are not in charge. God's in charge. Death is not in charge. God is in charge. Rescue from all our suffering is, a not, is not a matter of if. Rescue from all our suffering is, a not, is not a matter of if. It may be a matter of when, and may be a matter of how, but it is not a matter of if. It's not often on our preferred timetable, but it's always on God's perfect timetable. It's not usually in the way we were hoping but always in a way that is far better than anything we could have imagined. And we will not always know why God has brought that suffering and the best and final rescue will happen when we go to be home with Jesus forever. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, our worst enemy becomes our best friend because death is the worst thing that can happen to us and it just ushers us into the presence of Jesus forever. So let's conclude this. I'd like to read verses 24 and 26. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. So let's remember the hinge verses for these past two weeks. Because of Psalm 21, verse 7, I trust in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the Most High, I shall not be moved. We will be able to say with 22, 21b, You have rescued me. Because I trust in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the Most High, I shall not be moved. I will be able to say, you have rescued me. The next time you are suffering, now, later today, next week, next month, I encourage you to lament, to offer a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Tell God your honest feelings about the pain. He's not embarrassed or ashamed, and he knows. And then throw yourself at the mercy of the only one who loves you with a steadfast love, crying out to him as your only source of help. And then remember that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, God will always rescue his children from suffering. Always. Let's pray. Father, as I said Earlier, I believe this psalm contains important truths for us that are hard to understand and hard to express the depth of what it is you're trying to communicate to us. And so we pray that now that it's been heard, that it is your spirit who has been speaking. It is your spirit that has been opening our hearts to understand It's been your spirit that will enable us to apply these things to our hearts and lives as we go forth from this place today and into this week and into our lives. May you be pleased to help us have the confidence both to share with you the pain and suffering of our hearts and to throw ourselves at your feet knowing that our only hope lies in you that when you seem distant, you are still near. When you are not answering, you are still listening. And in your time and in your way, you will rescue us as you have promised. Whether here in this life or whether taking us home with you, you will always rescue your children, always. And may we live with that hope and that confidence to your glory in Jesus' name, amen.